So I'll read our prayer, um, and then we'll get into the scriptures together. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Lord, would you show us, especially as we look at your word and we hear the truths that you have for us there, would you let us see your glory in our valley, your life in our death, your joy in our sorrow, your grace in our sin. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. 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 You can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Begin chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, the letter. We're going to cover the first three verses tonight. I'll read them, and we'll get into it. Apostle Paul speaking says, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. This is God's holy word. Would he add his blessing to it as we study it together? I want to begin by asking a question. That question is, what is wrong with humanity? What's wrong with humanity? James Montgomery Boyce, a preacher from Philadelphia who uh, was a faithful man and a mighty preacher. In his commentary on Ephesians, he has a section in talking about what the problem is with humanity that I've never been able to get out of my head. And he says there's basically been three answers throughout all of history for what people say the problem with humanity is. The first suggestion is that there actually isn't really something wrong with mankind. There's not something wrong with humanity. We're we're not perfect, but people are essentially healthy. Sure, things aren't perfect. There's been some bad things in the past, 
but we're making progress. We're getting better. Things are going to be okay. We maybe need some more education. We maybe need better systems, but things are basically okay, and we're basically okay. To that, James Montgomery Boyce says, you know, that there, there's sometimes a, a want, we, we want that to be true, but it can't answer the question, why are there wars if we're basically good? Well, why do people kill one another? Why is there famine in this world? The first view says people are basically healthy. Second, people say, you know what? People are not healthy. In fact, people are sick. And there is something wrong with us. But we can get better. This view is more realistic, and it says we, we are sick, there's something wrong with us, but as long as there's still life, there's still hope. And so what do we need? Well, we need to be kinder to one another. We need, we need to take care of each other. And we're sick, but there still is hope. As Boyce says, there's no need to call the mortician yet. The third view is that agrees that people are not well. But it's not just that we're not well. This view says we are dead. We're dead. What's wrong with humanity? Is humanity basically healthy? Is humanity just sick and and really sick and we, we need some help? Or is humanity dead? Do we just need more education? Do we just need some rest? Or do we need something even more than all of that? Boyce says, this last view, it is the biblical view that people are dead. And like a spiritual corpse, a sinner is unable to make a single move toward God to think a single thought about God or even correctly respond to God unless God is first present to bring the spiritually dead person to life, which is what Paul says he does. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we are given a spiritual diagnosis of a person apart from Christ so that we might see the depths of our depravity and the riches of God's grace. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this text together and see Paul's diagnosis. Let's start right there, the diagnosis, and it's this. Apart from Christ, you are dead in your sins and transgressions. Verse 1 Paul says, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, Paul begins chapter 2. And we could think of chapter 2 as a ground view, like 120 frames per second video of salvation. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 especially, was the cosmic view, the view of salvation that began before the foundation of the world with God's election of those whom he would adopt into his family, those whom he predestined to be his sons and his daughters. And then chapter 2 is on the ground, not looking from God's view before the foundation of the world, but saying, 
this is what you were like. Here's where you were. We could see these two different scenes. But I want us to also see that these aren't two completely separate pictures in Ephesians. And there's actually a link between chapter 1 and chapter 2, just so we have our bearings. You remember verses 3 through 14 declares all the blessings that God has given us in Christ. That we are in Him, therefore we have all good things. And then Paul begins to pray. And as Paul often does in his prayer, he just starts going and he kind of gets carried away into a subject. But the subject he gets carried away into is Christ and his ascension and his resurrection and the power that is at work in us, namely the power that is in Christ that's at work in us. But in the prayer, he actually started speaking about us. Well, really the Ephesians at first, but also applies by extension to us. Look at verse 18. Paul's just been saying, for this reason, I, I've, after I heard of your faith, I was praying for you. And then he, in Ephesians 18, he says, I'm praying all these things for you, verse 18, so that you, and then what you have next is a hyphen or an N dash, or an M dash, depending on how educated you are. Uh, and then Paul goes off into his, uh, into his aside about the power that is at work in Christ. Now in chapter 2, verse 1, he picks up again that subject of you. He comes back to it. He says, I've, just, I've gone off and I've talked all about the power at work in you and what has been done in Christ and he comes back to us. And this is what he wants to say. And you, I need, I've talked about Christ. I've talked about the glories of Christ. And we're going to see more of Christ. But what Paul does is he takes us aside for a second. He says, but first, we must now see something about ourselves. And what we must see, Paul says, to Christians. He's teaching Christians right now is you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins. Now, I'd love to take you on a long word study of this word for dead, but I'll spare you, and I'll let you know, dead, if you look it up in the Greek, if you cross-reference it with all the other uses of Paul, do you know what it means? It means dead. Not alive, not healthy, not sick, but dead. Every Christian's former status before God sovereignly regenerated their heart is that they were dead. Now, this clear truth, it sometimes can get muddied because sometimes people can say, well, dead can't mean dead because, look, I have a pulse I'm saying words right now. I make choices in life. What do you mean by saying people are dead? Well, in response to that, we need to keep reading the scripture. And we must look at the next words that Paul says. He just doesn't say, you're dead, period. What he says is you are dead in sins and transgressions. There's a realm that the deadness is speaking to, and the realm in which this death operates is the spiritual realm. What he's saying is, you were dead, 
as to the things of God. You had no life spiritually. You were dead as to the things of God. He uses these two words, sin and transgressions, and there's a lot of overlap within them. There's the idea present of missing the full attainment of God's righteousness, what he's commanded, that we attempt what he's commanded in parts, but we never, we never are truly righteous. And the righteousness, the law, it's not a problem. It's good. The problem's us. We're never attaining to it. And not only do we not fully attain to it, not only do we miss the mark, but we break God's law. We transgress what he has said is good. And these sins, these transgressions, they're not just mistakes. They're they're not we from the bottom of our hearts try the best and we have good intentions. It's that we consciously make evil choices. Apart from Christ, this is the position of every single person. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 2. Because we need to see, it it wasn't something necessarily that we did that caused us to be dead. It wasn't our first action. When we ask the question, why are we dead? The Bible has an answer for us. Genesis chapter 2, Adam is in the garden, and God turns to Adam, and he says this, verse 15 of chapter 2, Then Yahweh took the man and set him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. That's his task. That's what he was set out, that God set out for him to do. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. On that day, you will surely die. I want to ask you, did, did Adam immediately die? Yes, he did. He died spiritually. And this is something I want you to hear. There is something worse than physical death. And that is to be dead to the things of God. What makes physical death so awful is that it marks the point of no return. When it's appointed unto a man once to die and after that face judgment. That's what makes death unbearable for the unbeliever. For the believer, we we still mourn, but we don't mourn as those who have no hope. There's something worse. God said, on that day, you will surely die that you eat of it. And when Adam ate of it, he died as to being alive to the things of God. Adam and Eve, they did sin. And on that day, Adam and all of his offspring, every single one that proceeded from the line of Adam, which is all of us, died to the things of God. This is actually what Romans 5 says. 
Paul, the apostle, says in Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who is that? Our father, Adam. And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. All died in Adam. But as we're going to see, this is, this is like a walking dead sort of death. Our hearts are beating, but we are incapable of doing any truly good work before God. We might do some relatively good things. I'm not debating that. But anything truly good, truly righteous before God, we are incapable of doing apart from Christ. And I, I also want us to get this. David said in Psalm 51, in sin I was conceived. Surely I was sinful even in my mother's womb. And what I want you to hear is that we aren't sinners because we sin. It's not the first time you sinned you became a sinner. We sin because by nature we are sinners. We fell with and in Adam. And I want to ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe this truth that you were dead in your sins and transgressions? And that apart from Christ, you would be dead. Do you believe that's what other people's problem is apart from Christ? Not, not they have some bad habits. Not that they didn't really have a good upbringing. Not that ah, they just needed a better education. They need a different environment, but that they were dead in their sins and transgressions. We need to ask this question, and answering this rightly, it puts us in our true place before God. It puts us in a low place, but it puts us in the right place that we might rightly receive the rest of what God wants us to know. Well, Paul, he not only gives, as it were, a diagnosis, but he also says, I also want you to see some symptoms of what this looks like. And so let's talk about the symptoms associated with this. Symptom number one is you walked just like the world. You walked just like the world. Paul says in Verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So you're dead, but as we said, we already admitted this isn't like, I, I, we're not saying as we look around, everybody's actually physically dead. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is we're dead spiritually. Our hearts are beating, and in our deadness, we're walking and we're doing something. And what is that that we're doing? Well, we're walking according to the course of this world. So Paul says not only apart from Christ is a person dead in their sins, in their transgressions, but at the same time they're actively doing things. They're walking the way the world walks. Now the, the crucial thing we grasp in this uh, little phrase that Paul has is what do we mean by the word world? Because it can be used in a lot of different ways in Scripture. 
the two most primary ways it's used is first in the New Testament, it can refer really generally to this place, this, this world, our home, the collective humanity, where we dwell. We see that in Ephesians 1.4, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, this, this earth and things associated with it. Or God so loved the world, he so loved the collection of sinful humanity even, that he gave his son. Or secondly, it can refer more narrowly to the sinful world system. This isn't talking about this place as our home. It's talking about the collective sinful world system. 1 John 2, 15-17 helps us flesh this out where John says to the church, don't love the world nor the things of the world. Well, really clearly, we know right away, John's not saying you should burn the earth down. John's not saying that. He's not saying you should hate other people. But he says, don't love the world nor the things of the world. So here he's speaking in a different way. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, how could that be? For all that is in the world, and here he defines it for us, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is the collective current that we live in. Have you guys ever been in a river and tried to swim against the current? It's exhausting. But do you know what's not exhausting? Going with the current. Doing a little float. Get in an inner tube and just going down. Swimming against it, you'll, you'll so quickly be so tired. The world is the current that we live in, and the current we live in is a sinful way of life that's presented to people and that just seems normal. And so if you go with it, everyone in the world will say, yeah, that's how it's meant to be. There's nothing wrong with that. But you go against it, and it doesn't feel natural. It feels difficult. It is, in a word, worldliness. It's the assumptions of our culture. The assumptions that sexual morality is okay. What do you even mean by sexual morality? That that phrase doesn't even make sense in our country to many people. That disobedience to parents is normal. Well, they're just teenagers. That's how it's meant to be. That lying is acceptable as 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 long as you can justify it. That life is about getting the most stuff you can, and above all, make sure you take care of yourself. What are, what are the messages of the world? What does it feel like to go against the stream, the current in this world? Paul says, we all once walked in that way. He said, the way you lived your life was actually just like the rest of the world. We were caught in the current. We walked just like the world. Now, I want us to know, this can also look like two different things that are really, at the end of the day, the same thing. This can look either like legalism, or it can look like antinomianism. Now, what what do I mean by those words, if you're not familiar? Legalism, trying to earn favor through the law of God, saying, I'm going to make myself right with God. I don't need his grace. I need to turn in a good report card. 
antinomianism. What does that mean? It means God's law doesn't really matter. I'm going to live life how I want to. I'm just going to do it that way. It can look like legalism or licentiousness. It can look like religion or irreligion. To be like the world isn't just to look like a person getting drunk every weekend necessarily. It can also look like living your life in such a way that everything about your life actually screams, I don't need the grace of God. To be like the world is to be unlike God. The Psalms say there are two paths. There's the path of godliness and righteousness, and there is the path of the wicked. Now, on the path of the wicked, there's some unrighteous religion, and there is some unrighteous, unholy living. But it's not as if those are different paths. Those are on the same way. Godliness is the path that results. It results. It doesn't cause, but it results from grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We walked just like the world. I I felt like I had a striking example of this um, this past week, and my wife and I were able to get away for the weekend, and very randomly, but we went to Salt Lake City. Um, There are cheap flights, and so we decided, ah, we can get away for the weekend. Um, And in Salt Lake City, the most striking thing to me was it seemed as if almost everyone, and I know this isn't, this is a generalization, okay? But it seemed as if, almost as if everyone was either a Mormon or gay. Like it was, it was the Church of the Latter-day Saints and it was LGBT progressivism with a rainbow flag and all the other colors hanging in the windows, and it was just, and it, it, it felt like there wasn't an in-between. It felt like that's all it was. And as I was reflecting on it, I was thinking about it, and you know what? Just like what we've been saying, those are really two sides of the same coin. There's two ways to rebel against God. And so for, for all of us, I would even guess the majority of us, we, we weren't, We weren't just total rebel pagans. There are some of you in here. But for a lot of us, we we were in the church. But but we did not love God. We said, I'll try to do better. I'll earn my way with you. But we didn't see the depths of our depravity. We didn't see our sin. And what what we need to know is whether you came from one or the other, neither person understands either the law of God or the grace of God. Apart from Christ, apart from Christ, we are dead and we follow after the course of the world, even if it looks really religious. Symptom number two, you were under the tyranny of the devil. You were under the tyranny of the devil. Being dead in your sins and transgressions, you've walked after the course of this world, and you were under the tyranny of the devil. Paul continues, he says in Ephesians 2, verse 2, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, some of us in this room, we might not really believe in the devil. 
some of us blame the devil for literally everything that happens in our life. But here's something that almost none of us, I guarantee, want to embrace. Satan was formerly our master. That stings. The devil was formerly our master. Being dead in sins looks like being under the tyranny of Satan. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, Paul describing what God had done for us, he says that he delivered us from the domain of darkness, that we were in a kingdom before Christ, and it was the kingdom of darkness, of the evil one. And he brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. The ruler who is identified later in Ephesians, this text simply speaks of the ruler of the air, but we know from later text in Ephesians that this is the devil, the evil one. He is said to be the ruler of the air. Now, this may be an odd phrase to us, but air here has the idea of the realm in which spirits operate. It's the, it's the place between heaven, and, between heaven and earth. It's the in-between. And it's in the Greek thought at the time, it was where spirits operate, the spiritual realm. And he is, as the Bible declares, in one sense, the ruler of this world until God decides to destroy him. And when he destroys him, he's going to destroy him with a word, with the breath of his mouth. But what Paul wants us to know right here is we were formerly under his tyranny. Do you know that as you see your unbelieving coworkers and friends, as you think of your old life before you were in Christ, if you, if you are not a Christian, did you know that it was, it was or is the devil at work in them? And we mustn't think of this as like exorcist, head-spinning kind of craziness, right? But this is an enslavement that works in tandem with the sinful, worldly ways and the desires of our flesh. It's working in tandem at every single move. Take sexuality. God said, this is what sex is for. This is how it operates this is where it's going to lead to flourishing and the devil his he has lied about it and our sinful flesh says we reject you god we don't want what you say we know better for ourselves and people get together and they say we know better we can do better this is how it's really meant to be and so what happens is all three coalesce and so it's not that the devil's just saying you should really do it like this. And everyone's saying, no, no. But that he tells people what their sinful desires want to hear. And that there's this current in the world that we're fighting against. He's also named as the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. Walking like the world under the tyranny of the devil. And listen, I know these are probably the three most bleak verses in all of the Bible. And they certainly would be if it wasn't for the next verse. But 
hear me out when I say this. You might think in this situation, people who are dead in their sins, people who are following the course of the world, who are actually under the tyranny of Satan, that he is their master. You might think what happens is people realize the way the world lives isn't great and that they want to serve the true and living God. They say, I don't want to serve the devil. I want to serve the true and living God. And so they, they take a first step towards God, and then he saves them. And he says, welcome into my kingdom. But that's not what the text says. People living like the world under the tyranny of the devil are themselves completely guilty and culpable and they don't desire the things of God. Symptom number three is an enslaved will. Paul says in verse three, among whom we all once, we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. To this point, the symptoms have focused largely on what's external, what's out there, the world, the devil. But here we go all the way to the heart. And we see that our sins and transgressions what it looked like in us, not just out there, but inside of us, was doing whatever our lustful wills wanted. Doing the desires of our flesh. And we see that the problem is not just out there, it's truly in us. Theologians have typically called this collected biblical teaching on sin total depravity, that we are totally depraved, every part of us. But I love one thing R.C. Sproul said in describing these things, because the word, the wording total depravity can have a misconception that says, at every single moment, you do the most wicked thing you possibly can. And we all know that isn't necessarily true. You guys aren't all trying to kill each other right now. That's not true. But R.C. Sproul really captures the heart of it, and he says this. He says, I like to say we are radically depraved. Radically depraved. Which isn't a lesser form of depravity, but it's a way of drawing out that it's not at every moment we do the worst sin possible, but that all the way down to our very core, we are sinful. In mathematics, you take a number and you say, what's the root of that? What's, the, what's this radical? Sorry, it's been so long since I've been in a math class. But you take 49, and Luke, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. You take 49, and 49, the root of that is 7, correct? It's what, what can you take all the way down to the, the, most, the most basic idea, the most divisible single thing. And with us, what is it? It's that to our core, we have been tainted by sin. 
that our very will and desires are sinful. This is the Bible's teaching on the fallen sinner's will. That we make real, genuine choices, but they are every time, if we are not in Christ, every time the sinner's choice is a sinful choice because we are dead in our sins. We're enslaved to sin. And a lot of people throughout history, this has been something that's come up over and over again in the history of the church. People say, no, people aren't that bad. We, we're born kind of neutral. You could make a good choice or you could make a bad choice. And I love what Jonathan Edwards said to this. He said, look, imagine I have a couple of dice, okay? Imagine I throw the dice. I throw it 10 times. And each time, both dice, they land on six. 10 times. You might say, wow, that's quite a coincidence. Now imagine I throw those dice millions of times. And every single time they land on the same side. At a certain point, you might say, you know what? There might be something with the dice. Every single human who has ever lived has shown themselves to be a sinner. Only the Bible's doctrine of total depravity makes sense of that fact. Maybe we need a few more thousand years. Not really, maybe. God's word is true. Why do you commit the sins that you've committed? Not only the world made you. It wasn't the devil made me do it. We sin because our sinful flesh wants to. And apart from Christ, you were dead in that sinful flesh. Unless we think it's just a physiological problem, like there's just neural pathway things going on, and it's just, um, we just need to rewire some things so we can make better choices. What does Paul say? He says, it was in your flesh and it was in your mind. It was the whole of your person. It's all of you. It's not just physical. It's body and soul. This means definitively that you aren't just sick. You're spiritually dead. And if you've been fighting sin, looking at things only from the physical realm, I just need some time away from that. I just need to change my habits then you're fighting a tank, to quote John Piper, you're fighting a tank with a pea shooter. We need to know sexual immorality, it cannot be conquered by a list of rules and filtering devices. That sinful abuse of substances, it cannot be truly overcome by just getting in community. Anger can't be transformed into patience by counting down from 10. The sinner has no hope in the world. Being under the tyranny of the devil, and there is nothing we can do for ourselves. What we need is something more. And this isn't only true for our salvation. 
I want us to grasp on to that. It is true for that. The person dead in their sins must be saved, but it's also true for our sanctification. We don't now turn in our sanctification to ourselves. We turn to the same source that might be able to save us and is able to save us. But before we get to that, Paul has one last thing he needs to say. And he gives us the prognosis. He says, this is where it's all heading. You're dead in your sins. What did it look like? It looked like you followed after the course of the world. You were under the tyranny of the devil. And you had an enslaved, sinful will. And what that all means is that we deserve the wrath of God to fall upon us. Verse 3. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You and I deserved the wrath of God not just an estrangement from God, not just that we would be apart from him, but his active holiness against our sinfulness and wickedness. The holy and just punishment for all of the evil things we've done. Paul later says in Ephesians 5, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, speaking of the sinful ways of the world, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. That is our plight. That is our situation apart from Christ. We were dead We were following the sinful course of the world who rejected her creator. Under the tyranny of the devil, doing the evil things that our own hearts wanted, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There's nothing that makes us better than the worst sinner in this world. There is nothing before a holy God that makes us better. We deserve the wrath of God, and this is how dire the situation is. And our hope isn't that we aren't really that bad, we're good. That's that's nonsense. That's not true. Our hope isn't that we're sick, but we can get better. Our hope is that we are dead, and our only hope in that, the only hope we could possibly have is that there might be a resurrection. Joel Beakey says this, salvation is not a matter of receiving instructions about how to help yourself out of a predicament. In salvation, God raises those who are dead in sin to a new life of faith, hope, and love. When God teaches sinners that they are depraved to the very core, sovereign grace becomes the most encouraging doctrine of all. From election To glorification, grace reigns in splendid isolation and locates all our life and joy in the Lord. This is the one and only kind of person 
whom Christ came to save. A person dead in their sins, following the course of this world, under the tyranny of the devil, doing evil deeds, deserving the wrath of God. And to that person, in that plight, come the next two greatest words, perhaps in all the Bible. Verse 4, but God. Who are you? You're a child of wrath apart from Christ. But God. And we will see. And I can't, I can't stop there, right? I can't stop without going partially into verse 4. And so you'll forgive me. I'm going to preach this next week. But this is an endless well. So we can do that. And that's okay, right? But God sovereignly reaches down. And he makes dead people alive. And he doesn't cooperate with them. He doesn't say, give me your hand. He saves them single handedly he bestows one-way grace upon them he cleanses them in that moment by the blood of christ he washes them and he puts his robes of righteousness on them and he says nothing will ever stain this robe and he came to destroy the works of the devil and to take sinners whom he rescues from the dominion of the devil and bring them into the kingdom that he rules and reigns over. As we're going to see, the main verbs of this whole section are this, that God raised us up and seated us with Christ. And that is what he does to sinners. He raises them up. He gives them new life. He resurrects them just as he himself was resurrected. He spiritually resurrects us, and he one day will resurrect these physical bodies as well, and he sits us with himself as he rules and reigns in heaven right now. And if you are a Christian, these are the depths from which God has saved you. And if you realize that you have never seen the true depths of your sin, think the words we sang where we said, don't tarry, don't wait from coming to Christ. If you wait from coming to Christ until you're better, you'll never come because you'll never get better. He didn't come to save those who are healthy. He came to save the sick, and not only the sick, but the dead. We'll close here. The Heidelberg Catechism asks this second question. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? This comfort replies to the first question. The comfort of being found in Christ. The question is answered this way. I need to know three things. First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. Our guilt, God's grace, and gratitude. This is why we speak about sin. 
so that we might understand our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. And whatever problems we walked into this evening with, we recognize right now that though they are enormous things maybe in life, right now they do pale in comparison to our plight before a holy God. How could we ever be forgiven and reconciled and made alive? We praise you for the grace you have shown us. We praise you for those words, but God, you are so gloriously different than us. You are holy and you are true and you are righteous and you are gracious and we praise you. Thank you for letting us see our sin. Thank you for showing us true grace and would you teach us how to live a life of gratitude to the one who has raised us to life. We love you and we simply say thank you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.